Good morning. Yeah, I, you're going to notice I'm a little hoarse this morning uh, because I went to Troy last night and watched my Bronco Nation destroy uh, Alabama. So my apologies, but it's a really good day to be from Idaho. And thank you for wearing orange to commemorate that today. I really appreciate that. <laughs> have you seen this movie, Zootopia? My, my kids have uh, forced it upon me, and I will tell you that that scene where the sloths are running the DMV, never was there a clear representation of hell. And so, you know, it's that idea that uh, bureaucracy not only slows things down, it kind of makes things miserable. Has anybody experienced this? You know, you go to the government and they just kind of have a tendency of screwing things up and you're welcome. So uh, I work for the government. I'm not part of the solution. I'm probably part of the problem. But thanks for paying your taxes, by the way. Uh, in Mark 11 last week, we, we kind of got this picture of Jesus going into the temple and, and messing things up. He's turning over tables, and he's upsetting the apple cart. He's, he's flying in the face of the authority and the people uh, who kind of run the show. He's calling into question the system that they've set in place for worship. And the religious authorities, they're afraid to dismiss him outright and publicly because he's drawn such a following. They feel like if they, they confront him that maybe it will call their authority into question. And so they're being very careful in the way that they question him. And so the chief priests and the scribes in chapter 12 that are mentioned here, these are the people that run the worship. So a, a priest in the Jewish nation was responsible for maintaining the purity of the people, for maintaining the purity of the sacrifice. They were the mediator between God and man. And you could not have a relationship with God unless you had the agency of the priests. These were important people, so important, in, in you'd call this a theocracy, so to speak, that they actually had a ruling council that made decisions about whether or not you broke the law of God and you could be punished for that. The scribes, now, you've got to think about it in this, this kind of way. Uh, in this society, only about 3% of the population was literate. And as a result, if you knew how to read and write, you had a very specific set of skills that were necessary. You became an expert in the Word of God, which was central to their codes. You became an expert in things like economics and, and legislation and theology. And so the scribes were always not very far away from the priests because there were people that could be consulted or people that could make record. They were the bureaucracy, so to speak, that always goes along with the leadership of a nation. And so they confront Jesus, they call him and they begin to question him about his work. And the, the first religious group here represents the authority of Israel. In Mark chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Then he began to speak to them in parables. Now every time Jesus talks in a parable, he's usually referring to one thing. And it's the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is this idea. It's the central teaching of Jesus that God has now come to earth and he is making his introduction and something is different. There's something different in all of society that will never be the same, that God is beginning to change us for eternity. But there's also something different individually, that God has made his introduction and we might know him and never be the same. And so parables always point to God's kingdom. 
and it's coming through the person of Jesus. And he says in verse 1, then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a watchtower. And then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. And then the season came and he sent a slave to the tenants to collect from them his share of the produce of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent another slave to them. And this one they beat over the head and insulted. And then they sent another one, and they killed him. And so it was with many others. Some they beat, others they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they, they seized him, they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's amazing in our eyes. So what Jesus does is he, he takes a new story and he frames it with an old story, if you will. He looks at the Psalms and he says, I'm going to take a Psalm, I'm going to take a reference that you know, and I'm going to add it to a new story and I'm going to put a new twist on it. So he takes a psalm of David where David is recalling this idea that God will protect the innocent and God will look after him uh, amidst his accusers. And he said, by the way, this sort of fits with this new story where uh, these wicked tenants, they, they borrow a vineyard and instead of paying their rent, which is part of the harvest, they kill all the servants that come to collect and even the beloved son. And the heir or the owner is not happy with the tenants. Now, in the story, the, the slaves that come first, the servants, those, those, that's a picture of the prophets that were in the Old Testament, speaking God's will to the people of Israel, who were rejected and often killed by God's own people, who didn't want to hear the message. The son, of course, in the story is Jesus, saying, God has sent all these other voices to tell you the truth, and now he finally sends his son, and you're going to kill him too. This story is not missed on the people hearing it. They know exactly what they're listening to. It's pointing to their own condemnation. They come to Jesus in authority, saying, we are the rulers. We're, we're in charge of the law. We're in charge of determining your guilt before the law. And Jesus says, you know what? You're in rebellion to God. You need to deal with your own relationship with God rather than accuse me. In verse 12, when they realized that he had told the parable against them, they wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowd, so they left him and went away. These are the most powerful men in the nation of Israel besides the Romans, and they're afraid of the people. They're afraid to upset the people that have surrounded Jesus. And so they walk away from the wisdom of, of Christ saying, what are we going to do about this very dangerous teacher in the temple? They had lost control because they had lost a sense of what it meant to follow God. They were lost in their own authority. You know, it, the parable gets the nature of Jesus. When he says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a, a cornerstone is the, the, the most important stone in the building because it sets uh, the 
the integrity of the foundation. When I was in Israel, we went underneath the walls of uh, Jerusalem, and there was a stone there that was the size of a bus. They're not even sure how they got that thing in place, but that's why there's so much integrity in the wall is that the stones they laid at the bottom are massive and immovable and permanent. And Jesus is comparing himself to that kind of a cornerstone, something that can't be moved. And he says, you know, you're rejecting me, but this is the foundation for which God is building his kingdom. There was a, a man named Lorne Kreitzer in 2012 who was, had been in an accident. He lost his leg. He didn't have enough money to get by. He was watching an antique roadshow one day and saw a blanket go for a million dollars. And he realized he had a blanket just like it in his closet. It was an Navajo Indian blanket, and he, he desperately needed money. He brought it in. He sold it for $1.5 million. Sometimes the thing that we think is worthless is the thing that's most important. So when you don't want to make people angry, but you want to make somebody else look bad, what do you do? You find somebody else to go question them, which is exactly what the chief priest did. In verse 13, they sent some Pharisees and some Herodians uh, to trap him in what he said. So now, in Israel, at this time, they didn't have different denominations, but what they did have is different schools of thought. So they all worshiped together, but sometimes there were different teachers who had different ideas. And one of the teachers, uh, the schools that they had were the Pharisees. Uh, you learned about them when you were a kid. They weren't fair, you see, right? And the Pharisees, they taught uh, legalism. They taught following the law beyond what the requirements of the law really would. They, they were experts in tithing. They were experts in uh, doing things that nobody else would do. It's like they were going to be more obedient than all the other Jews. And so they had quite a following because they were seen as very righteous Jews at this time, experts in the law, kind of OCD with, if you will. They're like those Christians, you know, that uh, don't run in place because they're afraid it'll look like dancing or, you know, they don't drink beer out of root beer bottles because it, it has the appearance of evil. They don't drink grape juice past its due date because it might be alcohol. You know those folks, right? These were the Pharisees. <laughs> You're just laughing because you've done that, right? And so the priests sent them along with a group known as the Herodians. Now, the Herodians aren't mentioned much in Scripture, but they're basically a group of Jews that are probably aligned with Herod. Herod was appointed by the Romans as king, but he wasn't Jewish. He was very hated and disdained, but yet there were probably a group of Jews that kind of were on his side. And I think what was happening here is the Pharisees would trap Jesus in something he shouldn't have said, and the Herodians would be there to witness it and take that report back to, the, to Herod and hopefully get Jesus in trouble. If the Pharisees could trip Jesus up on a point of theology publicly, great. He'd look bad in front of the people. But if they could get him to say something against the Roman government, even better because it would lead to his arrest. So in verse 14, they come and said to him, Teacher, we know that you're sincere and show difference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Now, if somebody ever comes up to you and says, we know that you're a really good guy and always tell the truth, we just need you to make a decision about something, it's a trap. 
They're trying to lure Jesus in. Well, Jesus is not stupid. Should we pay them or should we not? Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me see it. This was very much a test of Jesus' allegiance. Would he say you should pay taxes? Taxes was hated by the people. Uh, Rome was scorned by the Jews. They felt under the the heavy yoke of oppression by this, this government that had come and taken over their land. If he says, yes, pay taxes, then he's on the side of the Romans. But if he says, no, don't pay taxes, he becomes the scourge of the Roman leaders and will be arrested. Verse 16, and they brought one, and he said to them, Who, whose head is this, and, and whose title? And they answered, the emperor's. And Jesus said, well, give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and give to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. In the Greek, it actually says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Jesus does something really interesting here, is he takes their legalistic question and he says you know our obedience is really dependent on where our allegiance lies if money is so important to you that you have a problem giving it to the government out of obedience to the law you're not following God you're following after your own selfish desires And Jesus says, if you really belong to God, give God everything, and whatever belongs to the world, let the world have it. Well, that is a a very different approach than how the Pharisees had been living. They were trying to follow all the laws to please God and also further their own power, their own authority, their own wealth. And Jesus says, it's not about any of the things that you think are important. Because if our lives truly belong to God, our priorities will be aligned. And it won't be hard to figure out what we should do. So if you're struggling with right from wrong, what you should do from what you shouldn't do, maybe you don't have the most important thing, the most important thing in your life. Maybe your priorities aren't in place. And once your priorities are in place, it should be clear what your behavior should be. Doing God's will is easier when you have your priorities aligned correctly. So the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Herodians failed. So the next group they send is the Sadducees. The Sadducees are kind of an interesting group because they're not known for what they believe. They're known for what they don't believe. You know, they're kind of the curmudgeons of the church, right? They're the angry, bitter, smug people. They're very elite. They're kind of rich They're a little bit better than everybody else, and they want to make sure you know that. You've never met anybody like that, have you? Well, not at this church, but you've probably met them somewhere in your life. And and the reality is, these are those people in society that place themselves in a category above everyone else. And they they had that place in the church, or in the, the temple, rather. In verse 18, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection come to him with a question. Now, what's really ironic about this is the Sadducees, who Mark tells us clearly don't believe in the resurrection, come to Jesus with a question about the resurrection. See, these were the theologians of the crowd. 
Jesus has been confronted with authority. He's been confronted with the law. Now he's being confronted with theology. In, in verse 19, they say, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no child, the man shall marry the widow and raise up a child, the children for his brother. There are seven brothers, and the first one married, and, and then he died and left no children. And then the second one married the widow and died, and leaving no children, and the third likewise. And, and none of the seven left children. Last of all, the woman herself died. Now, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? For the seven had married her. Now, leave it to the Sadducees to bring to Jesus a story problem in math form. I mean, how evil are these people? And in verse 20, I hate math. I think it's the square root of all evil. And (laughs) she got that. That's great. That's great. The, the reality is these guys are, are trying to confuse Jesus with this very complicated story about the resurrection. And in verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is not this the reason you were wrong, that you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the story about how the bush, how uh, in the story about the bush, how God said to him, "I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is God not of the dead, but of the living." You're you're quite wrong. So, as I was reading this, I mean, this is a passage that's always puzzled me. You know, what's the nature of marriage in heaven? Where is Jesus going with this? And the question here wasn't about a loving relationship between a man and woman. It was about a, a question of property. The Pharisees were, or the Sadducees were challenging Jesus on this issue of who gets to have that woman in heaven. Who does she belong to? And Jesus said, she doesn't belong to anybody but God. Our lives were not destined to be property. Our lives were destined to be in relationship with God. And our future in heaven is not about a status or a a decision on this earth, whether good nor bad, but it's about a decision that we've made to follow God and belong to him. And that is the identity that we'll have in heaven. Each of our lives is more important than the choices that we've made on this earth both good and bad. A life in Christ goes beyond our failures, our successes, our accomplishments, our failures, our debts, our commitments, and it goes to something more eternal, which is our purpose on this earth, is to find a connection to that eternity through Christ. So we're offered hope in Christ to to be set free that's defined only by our relationship with the creator of the, the universe. And that plays out in our relationships on this earth and the things that we do, doesn't it? The decisions that we make. We were not born to be property, defined by failure or evaluated by success. We are born to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So in questioning the resurrections, they, they point beyond a religious debate to the central question of who Jesus was. They don't know yet the rest of the story, do they? They don't know that the most important thing about the life of Jesus is that he rose from the dead. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Without a bodily res- resurrection, then there's no point in being a Christian. Can I tell you that? Without a bodily resurrection of Christ... 
It doesn't matter if you're Buddhist or Muslim or anything else because there is no difference in this religion than any other. All we have is a, a moral code of laws and some good ideas. It is the resurrection of Christ that sets Christianity apart as something different and powerful and life-changing. There's a lot of people that deny the resurrection. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's, it's hard to accept on face value. If you were coming from no knowledge of Jesus whatsoever, had never heard the story of Jesus, and somebody said, and this man rose from the dead, you would probably find it hard to believe as well. But 11 of the 12 disciples preached the resurrection to their own death, violent martyr death. And the other one spent the rest of his life in exile. There was something so central to that belief in their lives, they weren't willing to let go of it no matter what the cost. Their lives, their deaths, it, it demands at least a careful examination about the claims of Christ. When the scholars of Jesus' day came to demand answers, he didn't shrink back from them. He, he welcomed the questions. And he welcomes your questions as well. It's okay to bring questions to Jesus, to have an inquiring mind, to to struggle with the truth as you're confronted with it and say, okay, God, I don't understand this. What does this mean? Because it's been my experience and, and it's the pattern of scripture that Jesus always provides an answer if you're willing to listen to it. When the chief priests and scribes confronted him with questions of authority, rejecting Jesus' message, he answered them with their own rebellion. When the Pharisees came, with an accusation from the law, he, he answered them with their own failure to understand it. When the Sadducees came with a question of theology, he pointed out their own failure to understand who God really was. He made it clear that God is bigger than your position on a matter. No matter how smart we are, we're still very small before a holy God. And until we realize that, we'll never really understand the kingdom that a right relationship with God begins with humility, both in spirit and in mind. So verse 28, one of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another, seeing that he answered them well. He asked him, what, which commandment is first of all? And Jesus answered, the first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you love your neighbor as yourself, for there's no other commandment greater than these. So now we finally get an honest inquirer, somebody that really wants to know the truth. And he comes to Jesus and he said, okay, I'm listening. What's the most important thing then? Because his relationship with God up to this point is, is really defined by the law. Because in, in Jewish society at this time, the law was how you related to God. And so he said, all right, if that's true, then which one's most important? Now Jesus answers him from the law because he's not throwing away their understanding of God. He's just making them understand it a little bit better. And it's interesting, the first thing he says is, is called the Shema. It's, it's it's the hero Israel. It's the most often prayed prayer probably in all of history. It's said by every Jewish person every time they pray, hero Israel, our Lord, our God is one. It is central to their belief about God, that there's only one God. And he said, okay, you know this is important. 
But let me define it. You're going to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, I used to kind of look at those as different areas that, you know, everything belongs to God. And, you know, you got to give God all of your strength, all of your mind. As I look through this in the Greek, it really is just saying the same thing in several, in four different ways. That all of our passions, all of our desires, all of our commitments, everything that is important to us needs to point to God. Now, sometimes as Christians, we go through life, and, and you'll see it, you know, people will go find Christian music, and they'll go find uh, Christian clothes, and they'll go find Christian schools, and they'll go find Christian dogs, and they'll go find Christian food, right? I mean, and I don't think that's what it means to be a Christian, is to go find stuff that's got a Christian label on it and say, okay, that if I dress myself up in these Christian trappings, then somehow I'm a little bit better at it. I think what it means is that no matter what we do, is defined by our faith in God. You don't have to have a Christian job, you just have to do your job as a Christian. You don't have to go have Christian clothes, just wear clothes that represent your faith in a, a positive way. We have to find a way in everything we do to reflect our relationship with God. And sometimes we don't even have to tell people. If we live consistently, they're going to see the reflection of Christ in what we do which I found to be far more effective than trying to tell people all the time. And when the time is right, then you have credibility. And then the, he said the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I've heard people try to play homiletical, I mean, hermeneutical gymnastics with this scripture saying, ah, well, you know, who's really your neighbor? It's only the people that believe what you believe and you don't have to treat everybody the same and that's just hogwash who's your neighbor it's the person that's close to you it's the person in front of you it's the person that has a need i i sat with a um, a table full of imams and, and village elders in jordan and we were talking through a translator and i just felt like god had put on my heart to share a story with them so i told them the story of the good samaritan and i wasn't trying to convert them i was trying to build a relationship and i said look you know here's a story from my scriptures i think that speaks to what we're doing the neighbor is not the person that looks like me. It's the person who showed compassion. It's the person that treated somebody with righteousness. And that's how we should treat one another. And I heard the old men and uh, the village elders around the room through the translation saying, Oh, Maine. Oh, Maine. Because when we live the truth of God, it preaches even to those that don't accept the message at this point. And we have to find a way to communicate that in real and righteous and vibrant ways. He, he, Jesus in this one moment takes all of the law and summarizes it in two commandments. He, he takes the first four of the, the Ten Commandments and he, he boils it down to love God with everything. And he takes the next six and boils it down to just love your neighbor like you'd love yourself. Treat people the way you want to be treated. And in verse 32, when the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher, you, you truly said that he is the one besides him there is no other and to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself, this is much more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had to answer wisely, he said to him, you were not far from the kingdom of God, and after that, no one dared to ask him a question. You know, Jesus makes a really interesting statement here as he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. In other places in scripture, Jesus says, you know, you're going to be with me in heaven today. 
In other places in scripture, he, he makes a pretty solid condemnation that you are not with me. You're against me. But in this spot, he says, you're not far. You're almost there. I don't know if I'd want to hear that from Jesus. You see, I think what was happening here is it's a place that a lot of us find ourselves as we're, we're honest inquirers of Jesus. And it's okay if that's where you're at. We're, we're making these questions about Christ and we're saying, okay, I, I'm, I'm interested, I'm listening, tell me more. And Jesus is saying to the scribe, you're almost there, you're asking the right questions, keep asking, keep inquiring, keep investigating, because at the end of this, you're going to find the truth. And that's a relationship with Christ. The kingdom of God means that you go, you go in with both feet and fullness. That's why you get baptized. You're completely immersed because you're diving in and you're not holding anything back from God. The scribe is just at the beginning of that journey saying, okay, I'm seeing truth and I want to find out more. And wherever you're at on that spectrum, keep asking the questions because God has answers. And it's okay to ask those questions because at the end of that road, you're going to find a new life in Christ. He's starting to see the message of Jesus. He's just not ready to make the full commitment. In verse 35, while Jesus was teaching the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? So there's no more inquirers. Everybody else is afraid to ask Jesus hard questions. So he said, okay, I'll ask myself. And he says, David himself, by the, the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And David himself calls him Lord. So how can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening with delight. And as he thought, he said, beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplace. And they have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of the appearance, say long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. So first of all, Jesus said, look, you know, I know somebody's asking the question, making the accusation that I can't really be the Messiah, the son of David, because how can uh, I be both the Lord of David and come after him? It doesn't make any sense. Well, David recognized it. And he points back to scripture and he said, David understood that Messiah already was and it was foretold that he would come. And so he points to scripture to answer a question. But then he says this interesting thing. He says, you need to watch out for those scribes. So I'm pretty sure it was the scribes that were kind of stirring things up behind the scenes. He said, they're really interested in wearing nice clothes and walking around and getting, you know, all this uh, affirmation from the people and, and sitting in these places of honor and, and appearing to do nice things, but then they take advantage of the weak and the, the powerless. They are going to be condemned. So the people in this society that seem to have it all together, the ones that are going to be most condemned by God, because it's not about the affirmation we get by people it's about the obedience we have before Jesus it's about treating people right not about getting accolades getting power getting wealth anybody who's pursuing that in the name of religion has missed the point which is about loving God and loving others but would they believe 
So in verse 41, he sat down opposite the treasury and he, he watched the crowd putting money in the treasury and many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. And then they, he called his disciples and said to them, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty has put in everything she had and had to live on. As I was reading this, uh, as I was preparing, the action here is the rich people kept putting money in. They were doing it over and over and over again. And the widow brought the money that she had to live on, not just once, but that was it. And they knew how much people were putting it in because there was like these metal tubes that went into the boxes at the treasury and they'd throw the coins in and you could hear it. And you can hear when it's just a small little widow's mite because they're really little. I was going to bring mine today and I forgot, but I have a widow's mite. And uh, interestingly enough, there's not a picture of the emperor on it. There's a, an anchor. And she just very quietly put in her two mites. And Jesus, he calls his disciples together and he says, truly I say to you. Now, anytime in scripture you see truly I say to you, that's Jesus saying, hey, this is the point. Listen, stupid. Pay attention. I'm about to say something really important here. And if he says amen, amen, this is really important. But here he just says amen. And he says, truly I tell you, it's... This woman, what she's doing is true righteousness. All these other people who came in authority and in legalism and in theology, they're missing what it really means to please God. What it really means to please God is to come to him with a sacrifice, to give him everything and let him take care of you. Now, I'm not suggesting you go sell your house and your cars and, and give everything away to the poor and then have nothing to live on. That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is be an honest steward of what God has given you. And in everything we do, do it in a way that honors God. Which is not easy to do. I struggle with it. Am I the only one? It's hard to honor God with our money, with our power, with our uh, responsibilities, with our position. But every day we should wake up with that challenge and say, God, how can I honor you with what I have? So to the powerful, he pointed out the need to be humble. To the legalist, he, he pointed out the need to see their own failure before the law. To the theologians, he pointed out the fact they didn't know God, just studied him. And to the honest inquirers, he pointed out the need to seek more truth. True faith beyond, begins with an honest question, but it ends with a receptive heart with a heart that yields to God in anything he asks of us. And that's why it's so hard. And, and you have to respect people who struggle to come to faith because they're honestly asking the question, what does this mean? What do I have to give up? What are the questions that you're bringing to God? Are they to disprove him, to dismiss him, or to discover him? Or is your heart fully surrendered? Because this is where God makes use of our sacrifice. When I lived here 14 years ago, I started taking jiu-jitsu. Uh, I've studied it pretty much ever since. And in jiu-jitsu, uh, your goal is to roll around and try and submit the other person out. You know, they tap out. They, they say, okay, I give, I give. Uh, and so at first, I thought if I could just get a dominant position, I would 
just win through my sheer force of will. And what I learned was the people that were actually more methodical and a little bit more humble and uh, a little bit smarter would actually submit me every time from the bottom. And it was really starting to frustrate me. They'd isolate an arm or a leg or a neck. And next thing I knew, I'd be tapping out because I was confused. I, I was putting my position over the submission. And in Christ, we need to find a way to remember that position doesn't come first. Submission does. Let me pray. Father God, I ask that today you help us not to get caught up with our own uh, arrogance, authority, legalism, uh, selfish theology, but to be honest inquirers of who you are and to discover your truth and to sacrifice to your will. And it's in Christ's name I may pray. Amen.